You know, the Lord, in the passage that we're looking at today, really held the Jewish leaders accountable to know the signs of the times in which they were living. But they were not able, and they should have been, because they were the religious leaders. They were the ones of all the people that should have known the temperature of what was happening spiritually. They should have known the scriptures, and they, were, they did know the scriptures, but for some reason, their hearts weren't in alignment with the scripture. And if your heart is not in alignment with the scripture, you're going to be all over the map. And they certainly didn't know the signs of the times. They knew how to predict the weather, but God didn't call them to predict the weather. He called them to be leaders. He called them to understand the times in which we live in, in which they lived in at the time. And isn't it a horrible thing to think about when you think about whatever your vocation is? Maybe you've got a specialty. Maybe you've got a gift in some area in your life. And then your boss calls upon you to exercise that gift or that training, and then you fall flat on your face. And that's really what happened here as we look at these first four verses. These men should have known, and they didn't know. And there's nothing more embarrassing than that. It's sort of like a coach, a football coach, asking his defensive line to tackle somebody when, they, when the running back runs through the line to tackle him. And instead of understanding the rudiments of tackling, you always go for the feet, not grab his jersey like so many of them do. They just kind of grab their jersey. Go for the feet, because if you get the feet, they can't run. The play is over, Correct? But the idea is that they're trained to do something, and oftentimes they just don't do it. They fall flat on their face. They don't make the play. And today, brothers and sisters, you and I, need to be aware of the signs of the times that we live in. We need to be aware of what the Bible has said. And what the Bible is saying, and the the course that we're currently involved in right now, Maybe sometime we'll just spend a whole morning or maybe a couple of mornings just talking about this specifically, and it certainly is warranted. But remember, prior to the passage that we're going to look at, the first four verses of chapter 16, remember Jesus had just fed the 4,000, and for many years, or for a few years actually, I've always thought that that feeding was on the western side of the, the lake or the Sea of Galilee, but it was on the east side because the, the west side of, of Galilee is where Capernaum is, it's where Magdala is, it's where Gennesaret is, and that area was very well populated, and thus they had the means to get food. But once you get over the lake, you cross the seven or eight miles it is to get to the other side, you realize At that time, it wasn't very populated at all. And so they didn't have the means necessary to just quickly, you know, have food ready at hand like they did on the western shore. And so Jesus feeds those 4,000 miraculously. And then he takes a boat, as it tells us in the last verse of chapter 15. They got into the boat and they came over to Magdala, which is modern-day Gennesaret, right around that area in Nof Gennesar, where if you go to Israel with us, we, we spend several days there. And it's a beautiful place. And Magdala is right next to our kibbutz, right next to the hotel. You can see it. It's there. That's where Mary Magdalene grew up. It's where Jesus, and that somewhere in that area when he brought his disciples over in the boat. So finally we get to verse, 
1 of chapter 16. And notice what it says. It says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of of the prophet Jonah, and he left them and departed. And it was good that he did, because they weren't really interested. <laughs> they were speaking all these things with their mouths, but their hearts weren't in alignment. Has that ever, has that ever been true of you? You know, I talk a big game, but when it really comes down to the moment, I've got nothing, you know. It's like playing poker, not that anybody do, but you know, you're, you're, every, every hand that you get, you know, you're putting out $1,000, and you get the last card, and you got this big smile on your face, and you realize you've got nothing. Got nothing. So let's go back to chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 16. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and they tested him, asking that he would show them a sign from heaven. And no doubt the Pharisees and the Sadducees, no doubt they had heard the miraculous feeding that just took place on the eastern shore of that 4,000-plus people. And this was the second time that Jesus fed thousands. Remember, we saw the first time in chapter 14 where he fed uh, above 5,000. And it's interesting that they were asking for a sign from heaven because by feeding the multitude the way he did, he proved by this sign and many others exactly who he said he was. He said, in, in a sense, in very many places, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the one who was to come. He's God come in human form. John called him the Logos, the very expression of God. And shortly after feeding the 5,000, the Lord said this to the multitude. Again, showing that he was the real bread that came down from heaven. And what am I talking about? It's in John chapter 6. Let me just read it to you. And it says, Jesus answered them, and this is right on the heels of feeding the 5,000. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And he answered and said to them, this is the work of God. And this is really important for us today, important for them too. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Whom did God the Father send? He sent Jesus. And the work of God is to believe on him whom he sent. That's what we have to do. That's what we have to get after. Not trial, you know, rituals and things and cleanings and cups and all these other things and making your outward look fine when inwardly you're just a bunch of garbage. You ever feel like that? Inside, you're just like, Lord, I know I'm garbage on the inside. I have a nice showcase and I wore the tie for that reason. Everything looks good on the outside, but inside, oh, ugly. 
And they said to him, what shall we do? And he said, this, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has set. And therefore they said to him, what sign, then, notice, what sign will you show us then that we may see it and believe you? In other words, seeing is believing for these people. But God says, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. Once you believe, then you see all kinds of things. But until you believe, you're, you're completely blind. But they said, show us a sign that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? And they're all uptight. He says, our fathers ate man in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread to eat from heaven. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you that Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus, obviously speaking very clearly of himself. Then he said to them, Lord, then they said to him, excuse me, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, notice that, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all who, that of he that, excuse me, <laughs> that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Remember that. That I should raise it up at the last day. Yes, there's coming a resurrection for the church. It's called the rapture. Are you looking forward to that? I'm looking forward to it. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, when we look at uh, verse 1 here, it uses this word testing, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came and they were testing him. And this word in the Greek is uh, parazo, and it literally means to entice or to scrutinize. And, and to examine, but it's to examine for fault. It, it, it's, there's nothing about this word that is really good. And you'll see in the context, in, in the context of our passage today, but you'll also see it in other places. A really good example is the very first time this word is used in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and in verse 1 and 3, it, it gives us this very same word. And you can see in the context that it's not good. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. There is the word. To be scrutinized, to be, to be um, incited, if you will. It, it, it's not it, to, to evil, to do evil things. He was tempted by the devil. Because when the devil tempts you, guess what? He's not tempting you to have you do something good. It's always to have you do something evil, Correct? Anybody been through temptation? Yeah. But when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And then in verse 3, now when the tempter came to him, here it's used in the verb, in the, in the noun, came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do we believe that? Is the word of God that precious to me? That it's more to me than bread, more than food. Is it more important to me than my next meal? And these men were testing Jesus. It's never a good idea to test God. He's the one 
who has the ability, he doesn't test, he doesn't test, he doesn't, he doesn't tempt men, but he certainly will try us to prove us. But tempting and trying us are two different things. One is in an evil context, the other one is to see really what we're made of. God knows what we're made of, but I don't know what I'm made of until I am put to the test. I can talk a good game, but until I'm, ex- uh, I'm in a place where I've got to exercise the word of God that I've been teaching, that I've been sharing, that I've been reading, it's only then that I really realize who I really am and what I'm really made of. Am I really made of the stuff of God or am I just still in my flesh? And see, that's important to know. You and I need to know that. God already knows the answer to that question. But even God doesn't tempt us. The same exact word is in in James. Remember, Jesus' half-brother who wrote this. He says, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. And it's the same exact word here. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. It's only the devil that tempts. God doesn't tempt you. The devil is the one who tempts you. God may try you. And then notice, they tested him asking that he would show them a sign. This sign literally means a a token, a miracle, a, a sign or wonder. And these guys were always seeking some miracle to tantalize their mind. You remember that Jesus, even when he stood before Herod, it tells us that now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him. And notice, he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. Herod was one of the most entertained men in the world at that time. The most entertained. And yet he wanted to see something supernatural. You know, I've seen the guy pull the rabbit out of the hat and I know how that works. But I really want to see something great. I want to see something awesome, something genuine. I want to see God call fire down from heaven and consume me. No, no. To consume somebody else. As religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, they should have believed on Jesus. But they were more interested about being entertained. And some Christians are like this today. Instead of going to church to be ministered to in the Word, they endure the teaching so that they can come for the worship team. Now, it may not be that way here. I don't know. But in some places, the worship team is what's matter. And the food that they serve afterwards, boy, if the worship team is hot and they're serving something good, I'm at church. Ah, pastor, I don't want to really get in the Word so much. It's like, where is the priority, church? Where is it? I know where you're, because you're here. You know what the priority is, but I know that this message goes way beyond these four walls. So I'm asking, church, what is the priority? Do you really know what worship is? I'm growing in my understanding of worship, but let me suggest to you that much of what is happening in churches today is not worship. It's sanctified entertainment. They may draw large crowds, and they, but there's no change in the person's life. God didn't call us to fill a building to be entertained. He called us to fill the building that we could learn more about him, that we could worship him, and then leave these four walls and be examples to the world around us that are dying in their sin. So some people even choose a church because of the amenities the church has and whether it has a lot of activities for the kids. Well, your church may have a lot of activities for the kids, but are they teaching the kids the Bible? Are they even opening the Bible? Is the church that they're going to, is it rightly dividing the word of God? 
Are you and your children being fed? The leading of the Holy Spirit and the pastor's attitude and approach to the Word of God, that should be what determines where you go. Not what the worship team does, not what the, the amenities of the church has, or how many activities are for the kids. And yet people today, their priorities are all wrong. They're wrong, and I get it, because I have a daughter, and I understand you want things for the kids. You want to keep them interested. But what is more important than being entertained and being, having crafts and stuff? And we do crafts here. But we also teach the Word of God because that is the thing that they need more than anything else. That's the only thing that's going to keep them. Are they teaching systematic studies or are they doing topicals and just a 15-minute sermonette on, you know, and then 45 minutes of worship? What is it? Is the pastor of that church reaching out to you when you're sick or when you've had surgery? Or when you've lost a loved one, or is he so focused on being a scholar and a radio or a TV personality that he has no longer any time to shepherd? Is he filled with the Spirit of God? But these men wanted to be entertained. Notice in verse 2, back in our text, he says, So Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And you and I are all familiar with the old nursery rhyme, Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. Red sky at night? Yes. You got it all. You know, because the weather patterns, they always, at least in America and some places in the Middle East, they move from west to, or west to east. They move in an easterly direction. And then the sun comes up on the east and it sets in the west. So as these patterns are moving and the sun is coming up, the, the, the moisture in the atmosphere can tell whether it's going to be a rainy day or not. The sky looks a little pink and so you don't go out. If you're a, and I, I grew up in, in southwest Florida on an island, and we had fishermen all along the, our canal that, that we lived on, and they would abide by that. If the sky is pink when, wake, when they wake up, they might not go out as far into the Gulf of Mexico. They might only go out into Charlotte Harbor or whatever. Ah, but red sky at night, that means the storm is past. And usually when a storm is past, there's brighter days ahead. And Jesus is saying to these men, you can understand that, and you should have been able to discern the times in which you live in right now, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Sadducee, Mr. Scribe, the Bible teachers of the day. You should have known this. You should have been teaching it to the people. But he says, a wicked and adulterous nation, uh, verse 4, generation, excuse me, seeks after a sign or a miracle. And no sign will be given to it except the sign, notice, of the prophet Jonah. Something that's already happened. I'm not going to do something new for you. I'm not going to tap dance with a monkey on my shoulder who's holding a little you know, can full of coins in it. I'm not going to be your, you know, as you start to pipe, I'm going to start dancing. I'm not going to be your genie in the lamp. No sign but the prophet Jonah left them and departed. And so this is not the first time that Jesus said this to the Pharisees. You remember in that fateful chapter that we looked at in Matthew 12, verse 24, when the Pharisees attributed Jesus' miracles to Beelzebub, literally Satan himself, because he had cast out a demon from a man. And, and even that wasn't good enough. They wanted more. They wanted more. They wanted to see more. And... Um, 
but the faithful chapter where they outwardly reject Jesus. Notice what he says in uh, Matthew 12, beginning in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, again, this is prior, answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. <laughs> it's almost like a broken record. Have you had, remember, remember the old vinyl when you had them, and then you're, the needle would get out there, and, go, and you're like, and you had to tap it to keep it going? Well, that's what these guys were. They were stuck on this little thing, you know. We want a sign. We want a sign. Oh, boy, we want a sign. Show us a sign. Make us feel good. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous nation seeks after a sign, a generation, excuse me, and no sign will be given. Again, he said this earlier, no sign will be given but the prophet Jonah. And why is it that Jonah will see that? For as Jonah, and here it is, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. These men were always wanting to see miracles. Are you, are you that way? Do you always have to see a miracle? And yet they didn't see uh, and even though they had seen many, they still would not believe. Notice I said they would not. Not that they could not, but they would not. There's a big difference. It's a matter of the heart and a matter of the will, isn't it? It's always about the heart. Isn't it true that if you can grab somebody's heart, you've got them? Not guilt. You can guilt somebody for only so long before they crash and burn, but you grab somebody and you say something, there's something that really registers and it's in the depth of their heart. You have got a devoted person. And see, that's what Jesus does to us. He gets a hold of us. There's no place I can go. No place I'd rather go. No place I want to go. He's got all the answers. He's almighty God. Am I going to get all my answers from some PhD from Berkeley or from or Harvard or Yale or Princeton? No, the, the real important things come from God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were similar to what the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about and us. He said, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money and boasters and proud and blasphemers. He goes on in verse 4 and says, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, are we living in that age, aren't we? Lover, lover of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Isn't that true too? A lot of people having a form of godliness, you know, they walk around, you know, with their Bibles, and they look all pious. And little do you know, they're embezzling money and having affairs with their secretaries. Oh, but the outward looks good. Suit and tie. Looking good, man. You wretch. <laughs> what a wretch. <laughs> and then in verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's who these guys were. And unfortunately, our world, even many churches, are filled with people like this. Not any of you. But there are people ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the, the truth. And this was the first time the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were usually in disagreement with one another. This is the first time that they joined together and one uh, divine said this, this was the first time the Pharisees and Sadducees, usually in disagreement, joined hands to trap Jesus. And sometimes, isn't it true, enemies will band together that are normal enemies. They'll band together to fight an even greater enemy. 
We saw this in the, in the kings, in the chronicles, in, in the kings of, of Judah. We saw this happening as well. It's very common in history. They had always been at odds with one another. And the Apostle Paul before the Sanhedrin, this is a really great uh, expose of this, in Acts 23, beginning in verse 6, says that when, this is when Paul stood before the Sanhedrin, and when Paul perceived that one part uh, were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when, they, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the whole assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Remember that. Most of you know it. For the Pharisees, excuse me, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. But there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man, and, and, they, and they go on. But the, the Sadducees were the ones who didn't believe in the resurrection. So it's amazing how Jesus' influence was able to bring these two groups that were normally at odds, to bring them together. And this is not uncommon. In Luke chapter 23, remember when Jesus was standing before his accusers? Standing before Herod? It says, that Then Herod, with his men of war, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. The old adage, birds of a feather fly together, don't they? There's a bigger enemy. We're all going after him, so now we combine forces. And remember, Jesus was speaking not just to the Pharisees, but to the Sadducees. So when he gave them this sign, it was no doubt a challenge for them, or at least a source of agita. Why? We just read it. When Jesus spoke of this sign, he was speaking of the resurrection, because Jonah, remember, when he was in the belly of that fish, he was as good as dead. I don't know if anybody's been in the belly of a fish, but if that fish doesn't vomit you out or whalers don't get it in time and slice the belly and you come splashing out, you're dead. Unless those things happen. And thank God one of them happened to Jonah. But he was as good as dead. And after three days, the fish vomited him out on the beach. Got close enough and just regurgitated. Probably... Who knows, if I was inside that belly, I'd be like doing this, pounding him, giving him really gastric intrusions. And no doubt Jesus was speaking. He was speaking about the resurrection, really, wasn't he? Of Jonah being nearly dead in the belly of the fish, three days being vomited out. Jesus also speaking of what would happen to him after they would put him to death. Because he said it. We already read it in Matthew 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's speaking to them of the resurrection. And is it wrong to seek a sign from God? I mean, really? The answer would depend on the motive of your heart. Right? We're going to look at three things. Number one, if you're seeking a sign, if in your seeking a sign, if it's an attempt to constantly affirm what God has already told you, 
God may or may not give you a sign. Or number two, if you're seeking a sign, if, seeking, if you're seeking a sign is antagonistic and you're putting God on trial because of your evil heart of unbelief, God shows that he won't give you a sign. John Walvoord said this, he says, faith is not, giving, not given to those who are seeking support for unbelief. Isn't that interesting? Faith is not given to those who are seeking support for unbelief. Another gentleman by the name of Lenski says, the unbelief of these righteous leaders, religious leaders, would lead them to refuse the truth of the sign even if the Lord had performed it. Isn't that interesting? And even the godless French philosopher, Voltaire, said this, even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. Does that sound like a hard heart? Yeah. What about in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus? Remember, the rich man is in the arms of, he's in heaven, what the Jews would call Abraham's bosom, but it's really in glory. And he sees the rich man afar off who is in Hades. And he tells Lazarus, Lazarus, go and speak to my brothers. I've got five other brothers that don't know, and I don't want them to come here. And it says, but he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So signs don't necessarily produce faith. If we're not willing to obey and listen, and these Pharisees, they were testing Jesus, wanting to see miracles. It was doing nothing for them. In fact, they were all doing it in contempt, not aware of the signs of the times. And Jesus wasn't going to cast his pearls before swine and become a genie in the bottle for these men. And then finally, number three, if you're seeking a sign to help bolster your faith in a time of weakness or uncertainty, or maybe you're feeling a little frail, God has and may provide a sign for you if your heart is honest and sincere. And we see this in the Old Testament in the book of Judges. It says in Judges chapter 6, remember Gideon. Notice what it says. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all of his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So the command and the sending was the enablement for what he needed to do, right? He didn't go to a, a, a seminary to learn how to be a, a, a fighter. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm going to go do it. And you know, I would recommend doing that. You'll never be disappointed if you do that. Do what God says. Don't argue with him. When he tells you to do it, then do it, unless he stops you and says, well, it's not quite yet. But if God tells you, that usually means he wants you to do it now, not six months from now. And I remember when I first came on staff here, I hemmed and hawed for a year, I think it was. 
Jeff invited me to, Pastor Jeff invited me to come on to staff, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can really do it, you know. And I hemmed and hawed for a year, and he had every right to say, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you again. But thank God, I did come. And I left my old job. There was no discussion of money or benefits or anything like that. I just left my job. Didn't know what I was getting into. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Because I was sitting over there, right where you're sitting, when he was reading Deuteronomy. He says, you've been around this mountain long enough. You're circling around this mountain long enough, Moses. It's time to move on. And the Lord spoke to me so clearly. And that was it. That's all I needed. And I've heard that, I've read that scripture, read it before, but that night, it zapped me right between the eyes. And I knew my job at Xerox was done. And it was. And I left, not having any, didn't know what was going to happen. But notice what God does in, 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 in Gideon's life. He goes, now if I found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it's you who talks with me. Notice the difference of heart. This word obviously is a Hebrew word now, but it's not the same word as you know, testing him like the Pharisees were testing, like Satan tempted Jesus. That was a whole different thing. But now he's just like, you know, I'm struggling. I need to know that you're, it's really you. And that's not a bad thing. He goes, if now I have found favor, then show me a sign that I know it's you who was talking with me. Don't depart from me here. I pray until I come to you and bring an offering. And he said, I will wait until you come back. And so Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread. And he put the meat in a basket, put it in broth uh, on the pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God, which we believe is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus, Yes, a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ before he was born in the womb of Mary shows up here as an adult and receives worship. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire arose out of the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And you remember what happens. We're going to skip over a chunk of this. But in verse 36, so Gideon says, if, if you will save Israel by my hand. And here is the crying out of a man who wasn't very confident in himself. Is anybody here really confident in themselves? Like the man of the hour, you can do it? No, he wasn't like that. And was his heart sincere? Whole different thing, isn't it? He goes, if you will save Israel by my hand, then look, I shall put out a fleece of wool on the threshing floor, and if there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. So he, he puts out, we call it throwing out a fleece, in case you haven't figured that out. This is where it comes from right here. I'll throw out this, this idea of chance. If you do this, and this happens, then I know that you're the cause of it, right? And so he does it once. And it was so, when he rose the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water, and then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me just once more, I pray, just once more with the fleece, let it be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all of the ground. And see, here is the difference of somebody who's testing. 
testing to get to sin or testing, or, and, and this is really not a test. He wanted a sign from God, not because he was being selfish and he was unbelieving, he was struggling. And isn't it true, a, a bruised reed God will not break and a smoking flax he won't quench. He's not going to take the mustard seed of faith that you have and go, yeah, it's not good enough, and then stomp on it. Just not good enough. You didn't make the cut, kids, sorry. Hit the, hit the bricks. Does that sound like the Lord? Sounds like a lot of people. But God is not like that. Jesus is not like that. He goes, you got that much? He starts to fan the flame. You know that when you're trying to be a man and you get out your flint, remember, and you're trying to make a fire like a man in the forest, and you get out your flint thing and you're striking it, and finally you get something going, and you're starting to blow it, and then you put some more stuff on it, and you're creating the smoke thing, the smoke signals. Anybody done that, or am I the only one? <laughs> That's the difference. One was believing, unbelieving, antagonistic, jealous, full of hatred. The other was believing, yet struggling with their mustard seed faith. And while I wouldn't recommend making a, a general practice out of making fleeces before the Lord, pray and trust in the Lord. Trust Him. Now, I want to go back to verse 3. Because notice, in the morning, he says, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, he says, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they were experts in the law, and they should have been able to interpret the signs of the times, but instead, all they could do was predict the weather. And this was an indictment against their understanding of the scriptures when Jesus said this. They had become the apostates of what Jude had spoken of. They had become those who are clouds without water carried by the winds. And when he says, you know how to discern the face of the sky, you cannot discern the sign of the times. This Greek word literally means not, not concerning time and space, but rather a fixed or set time. Think of it like a season, if you will, speaking of God's divine program. They should have known what God's divine program was at that time. And so what were some of the signs that these Pharisees should have seen? We're just going to look at three of them really quick. John the Baptist, we know that he was... John had claimed that he, had, he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. In John chapter 1, verse 19, you know, remember, they came to John and, and, uh, out in the wilderness as he was baptizing, and they asked him, says, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny. He says, I am not the Christ. And they asked, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And then they said, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That should have been a sign to them because Jesus spoke about this in Malachi, or in, in chapter 11, excuse me, of Matthew. Jesus said this, he says, for all the prophets in the law, they prophesied until John, speaking of John the Baptist, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. But Jesus defined that and we know that it was in the spirit and the power of Elijah in Malachi 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Didn't the angel Gabriel speak to Zacharias, John's father, 
before he was even born, that this is what his son would do. God was using a prophecy from Malachi to show what he was going to do. So these are all signs, all signs. And in what other signs should they have understood? Well, certainly the works of the Messiah. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 12, 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. I would say that that's a pretty good sign. Wouldn't you? And clearly, all the healing, the giving sight to the blind, the causing the mute to speak, healing the lepers, raising the dead, was what Isaiah had long prophesied concerning what the Messiah would do. In Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6, what does it say? Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I'd say that's a pretty good sign. Didn't Jesus point to those things? Didn't he perform those miracles literally in their midst? Yes, he did. And what about Daniel? <laughs> Speaking of the, the death of Christ... Jesus spoke that he would die in three days he would rise. They ought to have realized this in Daniel's prophecy, these experts in the law, these experts in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, we've heard this before. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, totaling of 69 weeks, correct? We can all do the math. 62 plus 7 is 69 and after the 62 weeks, meaning after the seven, and then after the 62, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Not because he committed crime, he was crucified. They should have known that his time was coming up. They should have gone back to Daniel 9 and said, the Messiah, if he's really the Messiah, he's not going to be here long, because it tells us that he is going to be cut off. And that word in the, in the Hebrew literally means to be killed. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted the kingdom now. They didn't want their king to die. They wanted to throw off the yoke of Rome. So this wasn't, didn't fit their narrative <laughs> of Jesus dying. But as the church, and especially the men in the church, we need to be sober-minded like the men of the tribe of Issachar in David's day. Remember, David had an army when he first started. And it says in verse 23 of 1 Chronicles 12, it says, Now these were the members of the divisions that were equipped for war that came to serve, came to David at Hebron to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. And then it says this, Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house, they would join the army. And of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come and make David king. And here it is, verse 32, Of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times. So now I'm going to flip it back on us the church, and especially the men in the church. The sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. See, that's what we need today. We need the men, especially. All of us, but especially the men in the church 
to know the word of God well enough to be leading our families in it so that we can understand the times that we live in. What are the, what's the temperature of what's happening out in the world? Are we, the church, aware of the divine program that is happening right before our eyes? Are we aware of the sign of the times? The signs of the times? See, man thinks he's going to usher in a great time of evolutionary progress with artificial intelligence and economic and religious, religious and political change. It's called the Great Reset, folks. Did you know that? This is what I've got to say to that. <laughs> the fool has said in his heart, no, God, we want our program. No thank you to yours. And see, the world has said, no, God, we've got a plan, and it has nothing to do with you. It's called, at least in part, the Great Reset. It's just part of the plan. And God's going to allow it. Sooner or later, whether it's soon or later, it's ultimately going to be fulfilled because we know that through the Scripture. Because of their ignorance of God's word and their hatred of Christ and his people, the Jews and the Christians, the church collective, the powers that be, people, and I'm just going to name them, people like Klaus Schwab, the founder and president of the World Economic Forum, Bill Gates and George Soros, Yuval Harari and other elite globalists serving in concert with our current administration. They will unwittingly fulfill what God has spoken to us about at the end of the first century by the revelation that God gave to the Apostle John when he was on the Isle of Patmos. The revelation of Jesus Christ. They are unwittingly going to fulfill what was spoken in the first century to John that we have read, that we have studied. So what are these three? And I'm going to go through these very quickly because i got five minutes. <laughs> there are three end-time characteristics, and, and these are part of the building blocks of the, si the signs of the times. There's three end-time characteristics that we're going to see, that we're seeing happen before our eyes, and ultimately will have their fruition in the Great Tribulation period, a period of God pouring out his wrath on the world but not before he takes the church out of this mess. And yes, I like that. It's very convenient. Thank you very much. But I didn't make the word of God. He has spoken that to us. I believe he's going to rescue the church. Not because we deserve it, but because we belong to him. And he doesn't take his bride and beat her up. But he is going to take his bride and he's going to beat the world up. Why? Because of the rejection of Christ. If you're here this morning and you haven't given your heart to Christ, you need to come to Christ because the wrath of God is real. The love of God is very real too. And he has poured out his love on us. And I have experienced his love, so have you. And it's such a wonderful thing to be in Christ. And I'm so glad. But if I am outside of Christ, and if I'm like the Pharisees saying, we don't want anything to do with you. We have our program. We want, it, we want to do the way we want to. No, thank you. And then God will say, well, you have made your decision. And he will unleash his wrath on people who have hearts and minds like that. And there'll be no hope for them, folks. And that's, do you think that God delights in that? He doesn't delight in that at all. He loves people, but he will not override your will. You have to make the decision. What decision have you made? Are you making that decision? Because you need to make a decision. My grandfather used to tell me, either cut, uh, cut the shrimp or fish. Fish or cut bait. What's it going to be? 
I think I'll go fishing. What is it going to be? You can't straddle this line and think that you're going to somehow have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. It just doesn't work. You will be miserable, trust me. You won't be a very good Christian either, and you'll be living like hell as well. I mean, really, is that the way you want to live? Or do you want to be completely sanctified and set apart to Christ? That's what God wants for you. And that's where the blessing is. But if your heart is such, I can do it my way. I did it my way. Well, you're going to have your own way. And it's not going to end well. Not because God is not a God of love. He's a God of love and he's given you every, every opportunity. What will you do? But these three end time characteristics, a one world currency, in Revelation 13 and 17 and 18, those chapters, it intimates that these three end time characteristics will be in place during that seven year period that I told you about where God pours out his wrath on an unbelieving, Christ-hating world. And these three tenets haven't become full-blown yet, but they will in the great tribulation period after the church is removed. So over the last three years, we have been seeing what I like to call Braxton Hicks contractions. Ladies who have had kids, you know what I'm talking about. You think the baby is coming, you're like, oh, wait a minute, was that because I ate pizza last night? Or is that, what is that? It's not a full-blown contraction, but it feels like something, something's going on there. And then you rush to the hospital, oh ma'am, I'm sorry, you just had Braxton Hicks contractions. When you really have a contraction, you'll feel like your bottom lip is being pulled over your head. That's when you'll know that it's really painful. Then you'll know. But over the last three years, we have been seeing what I like to call Braxton Hicks contractions. They are like the foreshadowing of things to come, but not the actual events themselves. But birth pangs are coming for the world They're coming upon the earth. And Jesus in Matthew 24 speaks of the beginning of sorrows or literally birth pangs. That's literally what it means when a woman is going through labor and as there's pain and then there's a release. Then there's pain and then there's a release. And then the frequency and the the duration begin to shorten and shorten and shorten until the, the mother is about ready to scream and rip her husband's head off. And then she finally has the child and then everything is all well, right? That's what it's going to be like. But a one world currency, and and I'm just going to share with you two verses this morning. There are other things that play into this, but this is just really quick and easy. A one world currency and a one world religion, it's coming to a theater near you. And the one world religion is slowly forming. The true church is being ostracized, being um, uh, canceled, while churches that embrace LGBTQ and embrace homosexuality and transgenderism, it's one thing if you come in here and you're like that and you really want to change, then praise the Lord. But there are people who won't set foot in a church. That's a challenge to me because I need to love those people. But they have to make the decision, right? But... 
A one-world religion is forming right before our eyes. Why do you think all these church splits? Why do you think the free Methodists have split into two different camps now? There's one that are holding more of their traditional line and the other ones that are having women and, and uh, homosexuals in the pulpit and they're having gay pride per, you know, uh, things right in their churches with the rainbow flags and, you know, and bringing up kids and having dances. I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's demonic. But that's the church the world wants because it's all-inclusive, all for the sake of love. Right? Are you kidding me? Is that love? We know that that's not love. God loves you enough to tell you the truth. He made two, male and female. That's it. There should be two boxes on every application, male or female. Not this whole list of, I have no idea, I'm confused. Two genders... One world religion that's happening right before our eyes. Even the Catholic Church, I hate to say, is embracing it. Many Protestant churches are embracing it. We will not embrace it. Why? Because the Bible says so. And I'm going to be following Christ. Are you? The pressure is on, folks. The pressure is going to be on you like any other time in history of the world. Your job is going to be on the line if you don't write down and say, I subscribe to this and I believe in this and I, I trust this and I, I got to let it happen. It's one thing to be kind to people who have made that decision. That's their decision they have to make. I don't have to be bigoted and hate them. I don't. I hate what's being done to them. But I don't hate them and neither does Jesus. But he will give them their choice if they continue in it. One world religion, it's all happening. But look what it says in Revelation chapter 13. And I'm going to take you just a few minutes longer. Is that okay? It won't be long, promise. Well, I won't promise. And in Revelation 13, we, it talks about, in verses 1 through 10, it speaks of the beast, meaning the Antichrist, the man of sin. It speaks about him. But then in verses 11 through 18, it speaks about the false prophet who is going to be part of that unholy trinity where we have Satan, the beast, and then the false prophet. Just like we have God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Boy, the devil's so crafty. Well, if they've got a trinity, we've got to have one too. And then I saw another beast come up out of the earth, verse 11, he took two, and he had two horns like a like a lamb and spoke like a dragon and he noticed this verse 12 and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast meaning the antichrist he's going to be a suave smooth operator He's going to be a smooth operator. He's going to be a smooth operator. He's probably going to look really handsome. He's probably going to be dressed like a suit. You're not going to see a tail and horns and a pitchfork. No, this guy's going to probably speak multiple languages. Be open to everybody of all faiths. Come to Papa. All of you who are broken and weary and humbled and broken, come and I. Right? He's going to be suave. He's going to have it all together. And the world is going to flock to him. And the false prophet is going to say, worship him. 
Worship him. He's going to cause all those in the world to worship him. And how is he going to do that? Well, it gets interesting. And it's interesting, this world religion, because under the program of the Antichrist, remember, that was attempted in Genesis at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, wasn't it? They tried to get everybody together, one world religion. And God says, oh, we're not going to have any of that. And he confused the languages, and all of a sudden they're looking at each other going, no hay inglés. They had no idea. They couldn't speak to one another, and it, the project had to be forfeited. But now, what failed in the garden, what failed in Genesis 11, is now God's going to allow it to happen. He, and they're going to all come together and sing, we are the world, we are the children. Have a Coke and a smile. You remember that commercial? So notice in verse 13, he performs great signs, this false prophet. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth, whose signs that which he has granted to do in the midst, in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image. Does this sound like AI to you? We're here. It's our, I, I, I've, got, I've got videos and, and news things that I, could, I don't have time to do that would, that would um, corroborate what I'm sharing here. What we see here, the, it's all coming to pass. We're not there yet, but it's, it, the, the stages are being set. He was granted a power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many, listen to this, cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. That's coming, folks. And how is he going to do it? And here it is. When they got your pocketbook, they got you. <laughs> he causes, verse 16, all, both, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark. Think of it as a chip. It could be a chip. It could be a, a something else, subdermal. And they're already doing this stuff over in Sweden. I've already shown you videos of them getting chipped over there, having chip parties. And the, the, the young kids love it because they don't even know what the Bible says at all. And they're like happy because I can take their thing, have a chip on their hand and go up to their dorm room and just go like that. And it opens up. Wow. I can go right up to the vending machine and go, wow. And the thing comes out and they're doing this and they're happy. They're excited. Spreading. He causes all, small and great, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one, does this sound like a digital currency, a world currency? that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him understand and calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Yes, it's coming. I don't even care. You know, I, I hate to say this. I don't even carry cash on me anymore. You know why? Because if somebody holds me up and they, takes my cash, they take my cash, I'm out, right? But here's the cool thing about sin. Because of that happening, now we have credit cards. Now we have, you know, these Apple watches where you can just go, boop. And if somebody steals my watch or they steal my credit card and make purchases, I just call up and I say, hey, I didn't make those purchases. No problem, Mr. Kellogg. We'll wipe it off your record. Have a nice day. Everybody's flocking to it. It's so convenient, so easy. I'm not saying that, you know, I mean, you're not going to stop it now. It's not going to stop. 
we're being primed. The, prime, the pump is being primed. And this is what we're seeing now with everything moving to digital payments. The credit card companies have already been monitoring your trans- transactions. And even some recently, you've heard this, were flirting around with earmarking some of your purchases, seeing what you're buying. Are you buying firearms and ammunition? Governor of New York said that's bad. Can't do that. You're going to receive, you're going to have like consequences for that. Go to your room, young man. It's happening. And it's going to continue to happen. The powers that be have been trying to implement this at the right time. Do you remember when COVID first began? Do you remember Nancy Pelosi when she was the House Speaker? Thank God she's no longer there. And that'll get me in trouble, so forgive me. During the, the beginning of COVID, what did, what did she do? She brought forth a bill to make all the payments digital, have a digital currency, because then the money could get to everybody quickly, but then they can monitor it. And it, would be, it was a great opportunity, a great opportunity. They had to seize the moment while everybody was panicking to introduce it, and the world wants it to happen. The devil wants it to happen, and God's going, I told you it was going to happen. It is. It's happening. I showed a video uh, when you know, the, the chip parties that they're having in Sweden. I showed that to you. And even more recently, the banks that are failing in Silicon Valley and elsewhere are all leading us. They're being bought up and they're being sold. And now there's going, and once the big shots have all the banks, then all they got to do is flip a switch. And just like that, we're going to be digital. Cash will no longer be accepted. Now, these things are happening. These are Braxton Hicks contractions. But it will all be fulfilled and come to fruition in the great tribulation period that I've read. Now, what about the one world government? This will be really quick and and, and short, okay? Klaus Schwab and the company of elite globalists, they're all salivating at this and they're waiting for the right moment. All the kings of, and the kingdoms of the world representing the revived Roman Empire, which we know is coming in the last days, is forming right in front of our, under our noses. And the last days in the tribulation, it's going to be there. And there is going to, they are going to these ten kings that are going to be over the whole earth, they are going to be giving their authority and their Um, They're going to give their authority to one ruler. One ring to rule them all, and in the darkness, bind them. Right? One ruler, the Antichrist, the beast, the man of sin, whatever you want to call him. In Revelation, I'll just give you one, and this is really quick, and then we're done. Revelation 17, it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. There it is, Revelation 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So again, we're speaking of a time yet future, correct? Not now, but in the tribulation period. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will gladly give it to him. One world ruler, and boy, the world is screaming, I just want one ruler. Just tell me what to do. One ruler. It's coming. 
But did this take God by surprise? Was he hoodwinked? No, in fact, he told us in advance. We've been studying it. If you didn't have an opportunity when we were going through the book of Revelation, I'd encourage you to go online on our podcast or ask for it. I know Tom has got uh, CDs or you can get them online. You can go through, and look, especially verses, chapters 13 through the end. It'll blow your mind. We are so there, folks, and that encourages me. And I don't say these things to scare you or to frighten you, but rather to prepare you and say the times, the signs of the times are all around us. They were a little blurry about 10 years ago, and now they're a little sharper. And if these things are happening, and we know the tenets of those things in the end are going to come to fruition, and we see those things already in place and moving in that direction, how close are we to the coming of of Jesus Christ. And what I mean is the rapture of the church. Folks, have you noticed deception? Have you noticed it? Have you noticed things unraveling globally, not just the United States? We're the last man standing. I hate to say it. We are the last man standing. And they must tear us apart. They must. Otherwise, this program doesn't work. But here's the thing. We don't need to fear. And I hope I haven't put fear into your heart. It is unsettling, and for a couple of years, and forgive me, I know I'm going long here, but for a couple of years, I was wrecked. And you've seen me publicly go through this metamorphosis. <laughs> and it hasn't been easy for me, I'll be honest with you, seeing my country fall apart the way it is. No, there's no law anymore. It's like people get caught. It, the news doesn't talk about it. It just gets brushed on the rug. Move on. All the things that are happening, it, it, it just it, with the mind of your heart, you're just like, Lord, what is going on? And he's like, Rob, I told you. I just didn't think it was going to be on my watch, God. I didn't think I was going to see the deterioration and, and, and the, the moving forward very quickly of this plan and you're allowing it. And he's so good, he told us in advance. My hope is in Christ. I don't worry about the media and what they're doing. I don't worry about the global elitists and what they're doing. Can I encourage you with all of this stuff, and I, I've been wrecked by this, and I've spent too much time looking into it. Can I encourage you, to, as much as you can, just pray. Do what you can do, meaning pray, vote if it matters anymore. Pray and live a life that's worth living for Christ. That is all we can do. It's all God expects us to do. It's all we can do. And I'm going to wait on him. Now it seems like now is the time. The game is on, folks. You don't have to agree with me, but the game is on. And I need Jesus Christ more than ever. I need his truth to permeate every part of my being. I need his character to be built in me so that I can love people and not hate them. The church, we've got the greatest opportunity now for so long it has come to such a time as this. Will we rise to the occasion? And what do I mean by that? in holiness, in purity, 
in love. That's what we need to be about. There's a part of me, because I'm an American and I'm a man, that just wants to grab, you know... <laughs> it used to be that your enemy, you know, when they showed up on the shores of Normandy, that there was your enemy right in front of you. You could just go take out your gun and blast them. It's not that way anymore. It's everything everywhere. Snatch as many as you can. Go out and speak the truth to as many as you can and bring them to Christ. And don't worry about the world. Forget about the media lying to you and even our own government. You grab a hold of Christ with all of your heart and grab him. Say, Lord, I am never going to let you go and I'm so thankful that you are the one holding me. You're the one who has your everlasting arms that nothing can pluck me out of your hand if I'm in you. Nothing in heaven above or on earth beneath can pluck me out of your hand if I'm in you. How many of you this morning are in him? Yes. Stay there and love him. Love him and love others. Tell them the truth and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let's stand together. I apologize. I kept you this long. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself, Lord, that you would write these things on our hearts, Lord, that we would read and that we would understand and that we would be understanding of the signs of the times. I pray for the men in this fellowship, Lord, that myself included, that we would all rise and be the spiritual men that you've called us to be in our home. Lord, uh, for our wives, for our kids, grandkids, whatever it may be, Lord, help us on the job. Help us to be the men you've created us to be. And for the ladies too, Lord, you've given them such a precious, precious vocation. Lord, there's no one like them. And Lord, I'm so thankful for your order and for how you put all this together. You knew what you were doing. And we thank you, Lord, and we celebrate that. And we love you, Jesus. I pray that you would just flood every heart here with peace, even though I've shared some disturbing things, but nothing I'm sure that nobody here is, hasn't heard before. So, Lord, help us to follow you, trust you, spend great time with you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen.